Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, always a privilege to be together with you in this way and to open the Word together. I have been just so enjoying the book of Colossians. Uh, it's, it's an epistle for whatever reason. I've, I've spent time in before through other sermon series at other churches and in my own study, and I always find that the, the more in-depth time you spend in a book, the more joy uh, you find in it. And there's things that I am that are being revealed to me, that I'm seeing in Paul's letter here that I've never seen before, and so it's just a joy to uh, continue to do that with you this morning. Uh, And I hope you're looking forward to next Sunday, certainly as I am, to be back together in the building uh, doing multiple services, but at least in person. So be excited about that. Tell people about that. That's the plan. We're going to be doing that uh, here next Sunday morning. Uh, Last time I I spoke, I preached, uh, I let you know about some things to be praying for us and just going on in our life. So I, I told you we're having a baby. Hopefully that's not still news to you. If it is, we're, we're having a baby. Um, now I get to tell you it's a baby girl, so that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. And, uh, and also, last time I, I talked a lot about uh, my work situation and how we were praying for the Lord to provide in that, and of, of course He did. He, uh, he came through as He always seems to do, and we're just very grateful for the faithfulness of the Lord in His provision even for us. There's a whole story there if you want to hear it, but uh, the Lord has provided and we are grateful. This morning, we are, of course, going to keep going in Colossians. Uh, Our text is uh, at the end of chapter 2 and then into verse 3, and this portion of the book is is really a a link in Paul's chain of arguments. It's going to be really important as we look at our text this morning that we understand where it sits in the context of the, the rest of the letter and as a part of Paul's whole argument in the book. So we'll read the text in a moment, and then after that we're going to situate ourselves in the book. What we're going to see today is that Christ alone is our means of salvation and sanctification, and nothing else can add anything to these works of Christ. Uh, It's essential to our walk in Christ that we understand what is the biblical means of sanctification. Otherwise, we will spin our wheels and will waste our life chasing holiness and sanctification by means that have no real value uh, in attaining sanctification or bringing us closer to Christ. That's what our text is about this morning, so let's uh, read it together. We're going to start in uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, and read through to uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Wherever you are, uh, would, you, would you stand with me as we read this text? Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Amen. What a beautiful text. You can take a seat. So let's place ourselves in the book of Colossians. Paul started with the gospel. He said, this is what I brought to you. This is what came to you. The message of Christ that I preached to you. And he said, in that gospel, you must be rooted and established. He said, I brought it to you that you might become mature in Christ, rooted, built up, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. It's in in chapter 2, verse 6. So the natural question that comes out of that gospel of Christ, that expectation of maturity, of rootedness in Christ, is how do we do that? What does it mean to do these things? And in the Colossians' case, what do we do with the things that other people are teaching about this? There's this other guy who's telling me how to be rooted in Christ. There's these other teachers that are giving me means of being established in the faith. Paul, what do we do with that? And so in our passage from last week, uh, chapter 2, 8 through 15, Paul actually answers this question by, by telling us what it doesn't mean. He says, first, before I tell you what what this is all about, let me tell you what it isn't. And he says, don't fall for earthly philosophies, empty deceit, or human tradition, because, this is in our text from last Sunday, they are empty compared to the fullness of Christ. What we have in Christ is so massive, the things that this world has to offer are emptiness, This week he continues in that argument and he he answers the question also by saying what what it doesn't mean. He continues with this. And Paul will write, don't fall for human precepts and teachings and self-made religion because they cannot save you and they cannot sanctify you. And then once we get to chapter 3, he actually gets to answering the question, how do we do this? And he says, it is through Christ alone. So that's our context And with that in mind, let's get to the first point here. The first thing Paul says in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, is that earthly thinking cannot save you. The people who were were presenting this false teaching to the Colossians were, if we look at what Paul says in, in verses 16 and 18, they were judging the people of the church. They were disqualifying, in verse 18, or another translation uh, would say, uh, condemning you. Those words are, are strong. Those people were looking at the, the Colossian church and saying, you are not saved. I am judging you. I am condemning you. I am disqualifying you based on these things. And the things that Paul lists are food laws and festivals, observation of the Sabbath, the the deprivation of their bodies and asceticism, engaging with the spiritual realm and some kind of worship of, of angels or something, and having heavenly visions. People weren't just adding these things in a legalistic way, saying you can become closer to Christ by doing this. They were saying you're not saved if you don't do these things. We are judging you, condemning you, 
based on these things as an evidence or as a part of their salvation. If you take this kind of thinking to its logical end, they had concluded that salvation through Christ alone was lacking. Something needed to be added for you to be saved. It could not be just Christ. And thinking like this, and it goes like, you are not saved unless, and not just saying Jesus. Salvation requires Jesus Christ and. If there's anything after the and, we're in trouble. It's not how the gospel works. Paul gives us in this, this whole section, 16 to 19, two really clear reasons why this thinking is nonsense. First, from verse 17, earthly thinking cannot save you because it only sees shadows. These people were attaching spiritual significance and saving power to things that were meant to point to Christ. Ritual purity, sacrifices, festivals, the Sabbath, all the Sabbath, all those things were things that pointed to and were fulfilled by the coming and work of Jesus Christ. They were shadows. And Paul says in in verse 17, the substance of those things, the reality of those things belongs to Christ. Compare that in your mind. Paul is comparing substance and shadow. If you remember that uh, kid's movie, the Disney movie, Peter Pan, there's this scene in the beginning where he's looking for his shadow. He's lost it. It's separated from his body. If you could collect shadows like that and, and stack them together, how many shadows does it take to make something of substance? You can't. It doesn't work that way. Shadows have no substance, and stacking them together doesn't make it so. And we can look at these symbols that they were venerating, right? Circumcision. We know that we have spiritual circumcision of the heart, finally, totally, in Christ. That is a symbol that he fulfilled. Food laws for the purpose of purification and being uh, sanctified in a symbolic way, right? We are sanctified through the work of Christ. Festivals that commemorated God's covenant faithfulness, we still commemorate that through communion. We remember God's covenant faithfulness to us that way. And the Sabbath, that was, again, something that pointed to the final, eternal, permanent Sabbath rest that we will have in Christ. All those things are but shadows. This issue is not just a thing of the past. We kind of read a list like that and think, yeah, like early church, there was a lot of Jewish people, Jewish converts. Of course, they brought all those things with them. But we have symbols as a part of our faith still today. And those symbols are a risk for us of over-spiritualizing those things, of worshiping those things, of venerating those things, of making them a part of our salvation. So the symbols that we practice are baptism. That is a symbolic act. If in your head it participates in our salvation in any way, we're falling into the same trap that the Colossians were here. Marriage is another beautiful symbol of the unity of Christ with His church. If marriage factors into your math of salvation, we have a problem. You're venerating the symbol. If you question someone's salvation because they're single or because they have a a history or a, a previous divorce you don't know anything about, you're factoring that symbol into salvation. 
Communion is another symbol that we practice, a symbolic act to commemorate the faithfulness of Christ and His work on the cross. If that becomes salvific, meaning participates in our salvation in any way, we fall into this trap of the Colossians. And there's a church 2,000 meters that way, a Catholic church that believes that. If, you, if I spoke to them and say, I understand the principle of Catholic Eucharist, and I don't believe it's true, and I will not take it, in their view, if you really press them on it, I am condemned because I have refused to participate in the body and blood of Christ. This is happening in our world. We need to be wary that symbols are only shadows. Second thing Paul tells us in this section is that earthly thinking cannot save you because it comes from an unspiritual mind. And this comes from verse 18. The ESV says uh, they're puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. The word there literally is of the flesh. The NASB translates this, their fleshy mind, which is the most accurate way to look at it, but really awkward in English. So unspiritual is a really good way to, to understand this concept. And Paul says that those who were promoting these practices were not holding fast to Christ. Uh, they were likely a part of the fellowship of believers at some point and, and had some connection to the church, but they had disconnected. They had let go of the head and separated themselves. This makes their teaching very complicated because they knew some of the truth. And their false teaching would have been a mix of truth and deceit. Paul says there were plausible arguments. Later he says it has an appearance of wisdom. It's not always easy to see the false things. And so there's a real reason why the Colossians were confused by this and caught up in it because it's hard to spot sometimes and mixed with the truth. The key, though, is what we said earlier, is that if you add anything to what is required for salvation, we disregard and diminish the work of Christ. And if we're thinking that way, that thinking comes from a mind of the flesh. This thinking has no place in minds that are set on Christ. The thinking that informs our faith must be rooted, and if you go to verse 19, in Christ the head, from whom good growth comes to us, the body. You can see a contrast there again Paul is doing between fullness and emptiness, right? People who are teaching false things are feeding you uh, shadows, empty thoughts, empty deceit, he said earlier in chapter 2. But in Christ we have real good growth. You can't grow a body on empty things. Minds that are holding fast to Christ have faith in the sufficiency of His work for our salvation and recognize that nothing we do can add to this at all. When I was a, a little kid, my dad would always be doing carpentry projects and all kinds of different things. We had this little workshop in the basement, and whenever he was working on something, it was obligatory that the oldest male of the house would help him. I still don't know to this day how my brother got out of this for 18 years, but anyway, it was me. So I would go to the basement with dad, and he'd be working on something, and when I was really young, he'd be building whatever it was, and I would get a piece of wood and a box of nails and a hammer, and you were learning how to hammer. But I was helping. I was participating in a way I thought, my dad, build this thing. But at the end of the day, he'd built a shelf, and I had a piece of wood full of nails. I had not helped actively in any way by driving 30 nails into a piece of 2x4. 
My dad built the shelf. My participation did not add to that work. Our participation or our attempt to add to our salvation adds nothing to the work of Christ. Think about what this looks like today. What do unspiritual minds try to add to salvation? What do they put after Jesus and? Well, some people might add the same things. There there might be an element of legalism, of the law, to their understanding of faith. There might be an understanding of asceticism where you have to deprive your body in a particular way or for a particular purpose. Maybe there's some mix of mysticism, seeking after spirits and angelic visions and worship of angels. Maybe we've added moral and social expectations to our understanding of salvation. You know, picture what happens if someone comes to our our church and joins us who isn't saved, and in a moment they are justified before the Lord. They're not sanctified yet, but they're saved. What do you do with those people who five seconds ago did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they do? They're believers, same as me and you. Their life will not reflect yet the glory they have in Christ the sanctification He has for them. Have we added those things to what we understand of salvation? Jesus Christ in anything, what are the things that make you think, is that person saved beyond Jesus Christ? What are those things? That is foolish and earthly thinking, and we know earthly thinking cannot save you because it only sees shadows and it comes from an unspiritual mind. Christ is the substance, and our thinking must be rooted in Him. The second major thing Paul says here in in this text uh, happens in in verses 20 to 23, which uh, it's been a while since we read it, so I'll, I'll read it again just to get us back in this section. It says in verse 20, If with Christ you died... To the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Not only had these people added to the measure of salvation, right, Jesus and, but they were also adding to the means of sanctification, as if the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit was not enough to sanctify you, not enough to make you more like Christ. If you follow this thinking to its logical end, it concludes that the spiritual life that we have rooted in Christ alone is lacking, that there isn't enough, that something must be added to our sanctification in Christ for it to be effective. Yet even from Colossians in chapter 1, we know the work of Christ in chapter 122 is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That's the work of Christ. What can we add to those things? Paul gives us three really good reasons why this thinking is also foolishness. First one, out of verse 20. Earthly thinking cannot sanctify you because you have died to this world. 
Those who are in Christ have died, and we have been given new life in Christ. This reality, this world around us, is not where we live. It's where we are, but it's not where we live. The key assumption they were making is that human thinking, human teaching, human regulations about perishable things, he says that in in 21, could bring you closer to the imperishable things. That thinking about the things that decay, the things that rot, the things that die, the things that disappear, that are but a vapor, can bring you closer to the things that are eternal. That the shadow can bring you closer to the substance. And that doesn't make any sense. How can it make sense that our minds would be focused on the things of this earth to reach, achieve, or earn the things of heaven? Our world does love this, though, ever since, well, ever since, forever. In our age, we look at how people understand religious belief. If you cling to things that are, you know, pluralistic and inoffensive, undefined and earthy kind of man-made spiritualism, like an awareness of some cosmic power that you can't identify that loves everyone or whatever. Our world loves that stuff. It's politically correct. Nobody's going to get you in trouble about it. It fits with whatever people think, but it's earthly thinking. If we have died to this world, how can setting our minds on this world help our spiritual life. This is stacking shadows to get to the fullness. You know, way back in Genesis, we read this a number of weeks ago as a part of a reading plan, we read about the Tower of Babel. And those people were trying to reach heaven. And in their cosmology, heaven was a physical place above the sky, and they were building the tower to get there. They were stacking stones because heaven was up there. Today, people stack shadows because heaven's a ethereal, kind of non-physical you know, in the clouds sort of reality. If you can pile enough good thinking and good philosophy and good thoughts, you're going to get there, but you can build your own Babel, and it does not get you anywhere. Paul hints for us uh, at where he's eventually going in chapter 3. He says the, the key to all of this is that our reality has changed because we're in Christ. Christians are dead to this world. Our new life is with Christ. It doesn't make any sense for us to stay in this present world and seek the things of this world and use the things of this world to try to get to heaven. Shadows cannot bring us to substance. Second thing he shows us in verse 22 is that earthly thinking cannot sanctify you because it's based on the teachings of men. That right there, that, just that phrase on its own in verse, uh, in verse 22, according to the human precepts and teaching, is a huge rebuke out of the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah here. And Paul is actually quoting the same passage that Jesus quoted to the Pharisees when he rebuked them in Matthew 15 for forsaking the Word of God in the interest of preserving their own traditions and rules and laws. Isaiah writes in 29.13, he says, "...this people honor me with their lips." but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This worship, based on the teachings and commandments of men, is not satisfying to the Lord. It is lip service from hearts that are far 
from God. It has an appearance of wisdom. It might look the part, seem appealing, and and it might even make sense according to the thinking of this world. But we know from Colossians 2 verse 3 that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. If we're finding wisdom and knowledge other places, not rooting that in Christ, it is not satisfying. It will not sanctify. It's rooted in the teachings of men. Paul gives us one more reason in this section why earthly thinking cannot sanctify you. He says in, uh, in verse 23, earthly thinking cannot sanctify you essentially because it can't. He says earthly thinking cannot sanctify you because it is ineffective. It has no real value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is the purpose of sanctification. Things that promise sanctification but are disconnected from Christ, like we said earlier, have only an appearance of real wisdom. Unless they're rooted in Christ, the things that promise sanctification to us, promise improvement of our lives on this earth, have no actual value. Not only are they illogical for us who are dead to this world, not only does God not see them as acceptable worship, but they don't even work. These things make false promises to us. Like a get-rich-quick uh, get scheme or, you know, lose 100 pounds in seven days, weight loss. Big promises, really, really poor delivery. The false teachers promised the Colossians that these things would stop the indulgence of their flesh, that they would prevent sin, that they would bring them closer to Christ. Yet the practices they advocated were not rooted in Christ, so how could they be effective For Christians, through Christ alone, do we find real sanctification by our death to this world in Him and by our new life to Him and our new life with Him. Our culture is full of earthly thinking that makes these kinds of empty promises about sanctification, about life change without Christ. Think about the prosperity gospel. You can find that anywhere all over the internet, that's for sure. That prosperity gospel promises a good life, really without Christ. It promises that you can demand things of the Lord. You can choose what you want. You can get what you want through Him, kind of like a cosmic genie, and God will give it to you because you're in control, because you can think the right thoughts, because you can do the right things, because you can lose 100 pounds in seven days. It's the same thing. Our world is also full of, of positive thinking. You know, if you, if you put this in your mind and you think the right thoughts, if you think you're a nice person long enough, if you say it enough times in a day, you will become a nice person. The new uh, hip term for this apparently is manifesting. If you don't know what that is, ask a teenager. Same idea. If you think on something, it will appear. It will come. It will show up in your life. You know, a teenage kid, classic example, thinks, I want this video game for Christmas, and I want it, and I want it, and I want it, and they think on it long enough, and it comes. That is an empty promise. Another one that our world promises is that self-deification, meaning placing yourself at the center of the world, will improve your life, will make it better. 
that you being centered in your world, that you being the most important thing, that you being at the middle, essentially being prideful, will make your life better. Other people are here to serve you. Other people are here for your benefit. I'm going to do all the things I can to make my own life the best. I can do this alone. Those are empty promises that are disconnected from Christ, and none of them are any of any real value in putting off the flesh. This thinking that is earthly is pathetically empty compared to the fullness of Christ. Remember where we started in, in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Paul wrote, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And the question we ask from there is, what does this mean, and, and how do we do it? And Paul, to this point, has been clarifying what it, what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean seeking the things of this world. And in our final section, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he gets to answering what it does mean and how we do uh, indeed do it. First thing, all of this out of chapter 3 is through Christ alone. Let me read it for you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The first thing we can see here is that Christ alone can save you. So how do we go about walking in Christ, being rooted in Him? First, we need to be saved by Him alone. Look in this text even. Christ is the only means of our salvation. We died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ. Christ is our life. There's no room for Christ and. We have been buried with Him in death. We have been raised to new life. The old has gone. The new has come. We are not the same because of Christ alone. Not Christ in works or Christ in the law, Christ in prosperity, Christ in positive thinking, not Christ in you, Christ alone. Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. Nothing else can add anything to the work of Christ. His work is sufficient, meaning it's done all that needs to be done. Look back to chapter 2, verse 13 and uh, 14. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What else is there to do? What more could we ask for? Is this not a sufficient gospel? What Paul's writing here is the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That mystery is that the, the fullness of the deity of God came and dwelled bodily among us in Jesus. Jesus who came out of love, who came to redeem and to reconcile his creation to himself. Jesus who saw our sin and took upon him the debt that we owed and the judgment that we deserved. And having taken that punishment and paid that debt, he declared us innocent before the Lord. Having spilled his blood that covers our sins and cleanses us, he has declared us pure and righteous. And having secured for us resurrection in glory through conquering the, Dave and the grave and death in his resurrection, he has eternally redeemed us. He has reconciled us to himself. He sent then the Holy Spirit that we would be sanctified and mature into this reality that he has secured for us eternally. That's the gospel. That is the mystery. That is the thing to which we can add nothing at all. Praise be to God. If that gospel is new to you, or you have to this point thought you've been saved by that gospel and anything else, find someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ to walk through that with you that you would know and believe in and be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. What he has done is sufficient for your salvation in him. The second thing Paul shows us here is that Christ alone can sanctify you. So having trusted the fullness of our salvation to him, knowing we can add nothing, knowing his work is sufficient, how then do we seek sanctification? Well, we've already clearly established that it's not through any means that this world has to offer. Paul shows us here in, in chapter 3, 1 to 4, what it is that we do to seek this sanctification. The key phrases out of Colossians 3, 1 to 4 is that we ought to, in, in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. And, back to verse 1, seek the things that are above. Setting our mind on Christ, setting our mind on what is above, that is the key the, to living in the reality of the glory of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, that gospel work he's done for us. The key question is, is, what is this above talking about? Set your minds on things that are above, think on things that are above. It doesn't mean, you know, just positive thoughts. It doesn't mean just thinking on good things. It doesn't mean just, you know, thinking I will be nice enough and you'll be nice. In this passage, Paul is saying, above is where Christ is, with God, in glory, where your life is. That's what's above. Above is where you are. Above is where your new life is hidden with Christ. That's what's above. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's setting our minds on the glory we have in Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it clear here that this reality of the things that are above, this glory we're promised in Christ that is ours through his work, must define this reality, the one that we live in, in the here and now. Our minds must be focused on somewhere else. If our minds are devoted to the things that are above, how can that not affect this life here and now? 
So what do we set our minds on? Saying things above and saying it's Christ and saying it's glory and up there is is still fairly vague if you think anything like me. That's not quite enough to engage my mind in thinking on what is above. What is this reality where Christ is? What, What do you think of? You got one of those cream cheese commercials in your head, right? Cloud in the sky, harp, angel, that kind of stuff. That's not what this is about. This is about a big vision of who God is. This is about a big vision of Christ. Do we really, truly understand, have we, have we internalized in our heart, in our mind, in the center of who we are, how awesome Christ is in His person, how awesome He is in His work? This is one of the things that uh, Paul has been doing in this letter to the Colossians. I'm going to read a short thing to you that I've, I've written out of the book of Colossians. This is all the things that Paul says about Christ. Listen as I read. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The substance of all things belongs to Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the body, the church, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth from God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily, And he has reconciled to himself all things on heaven and earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. He has reconciled us to himself to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before the Lord. In him our hearts have been circumcised, our flesh has been cast away. We have been buried in death and raised with him to new life in baptism. We have been made alive together with him and forgiven because of his cross our life is hidden with christ and when christ who is our life appears we also will appear with him in glory these are glorious things these are the things and so much more that we can set our minds on this is the reality of christ this is who he is this is what he has done and we are with him in the things that are above, in the heavenly places, with God. That is where our life is hidden. That is our reality. How can that reality of Christ, how can the reality of that glory secured for us forever not change who we are and how we think and what we do? C.S. Lewis has a, a particularly famous quote that you've heard in a hundred sermons before now, but it's, it's relevant here as well. He writes, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy, infinite glory, I might add, is offered us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Still true of us today. Paul goes from here, from establishing that salvation and sanctification are through Christ alone, 
to two broad categories of application that, that fill out the rest of chapter 3. And basically what he says is, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And in the, the latter section, put on then what is holy. And these two commands are rooted in this principle that all this is through Christ. By setting our minds on the glory that he has secured for us, by setting our minds on the future that we have with him, by living in the reality he has resurrected us to, we can put to death what is earthly in us and put on what is holy. And what we've seen, of course, is that the ways of this world are useless in the putting to death part of sanctification in particular. They're not effective in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So to fill this out or illustrate this a little more fully, I want to think through a a particular sin struggle and just see and think through how setting our minds on the things that are above on Christ rather than earthly things can change our walk with Christ as we put to death the flesh. Paul writes uh, in the section immediately following our text in chapter 3 verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and then he lists a number of other things. Sexual immorality uh, is a really helpful one to work through this way because it's clearly and obviously an indulgence of the flesh. So let's talk through that one. It relates best to the, the principles and practices these people were advocating through asceticism and severity to the body, all that kind of stuff. In particular, a prevalent form of sexual immorality in our world, in our culture, in the churches is pornography. So let's walk through that. If this hasn't been or isn't your struggle, just insert something else here. The principle is still true. It's just helpful to have one to think through and reference. Again, sexual sins in particular, and this sin in particular, is just a clear and obvious indulgence of the flesh, and it screams out for earthly wisdom. It's, it just calls for bodily regulation, asceticism, severity to your body for earthly thinking. You know, re- remove access, treat it like an addiction, just think differently, change your environment, recognize the impact that this has long term. But you know what has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Any thinking that is not rooted in Christ. That has to be first. Might these things bring you to momentary victory over your sin? Sure. But have you stopped the indulgence of the flesh without Christ? No. You may have victory for a time. You might even trade this sin for a different one. But you have not stopped it. You have not changed your heart, your position before Christ as far as your sanctification goes. Instead of thinking according to the world and in earthly ways, what happens instead when we dwell on Christ and the things that are above? What happens when you you give up worldly wisdom on seeking holiness through the means of this world? What happens when you trade the immediate gratification of sin for the glorious, eternal, full reality in Christ? What happens when you allow the Holy Spirit to change your thinking from, I am so sinful, I must conquer this sin by doing X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, so I can make myself more like Christ through asceticism, through severity to my body, through restricting myself, through doing things 
And what happens when the Spirit changes our thinking to, I am redeemed in Christ. I am sanctified in Christ. I have died with Christ. I have been raised to new life with Christ. I am dead to this world. My life is Christ, and I will be with Him in glory. You know what seems small? Sin. Any sin. Any indulgence of the flesh. When our minds are changed and thinking on things that are above, we will desire to live in this physical reality in a way that reflects our resurrected reality in glory with Christ. Through the work of the Spirit, there can be real, genuine confession, repentance, heart change. Should there and will there need to be biblical accountability, constant prayer, vigilance, helpful practical strategies to to work out your sin and and get rid of it and, and put the flesh to death? Yes, but these things must first be rooted in Christ. They must be rooted in the reality that your sanctification is in Christ alone. If we start with the strategies, we get nowhere. We spin our wheels. We waste our life. I and many others have lived this struggle. And I can tell you that Christ is the only means of sanctification. Outside of Christ, I have no victory over this sin. We and you have no victory over any sin. We have no sanctification. We do not become more like Christ without Him. Our enemy, the tempter, the great tempter, the ruler of this world, is tenacious. He's ferocious, described as a lion. He's cunning. He's deceitful. He's the one who ultimately puts forward these philosophies, the empty deceit, the human traditions that the Colossians were trying to figure out. He's the one, though, who Christ put to shame through his resurrection. And yet this enemy, this tempter, Satan himself, will continue to promise anything and everything to keep you from Christ as you battle your sin. Because he knows, as Paul did and as we know now today, that no matter what else you try, if it is not rooted in Christ, it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Satan is happy for you to work away for your whole life on your sin on your own. He loves that. Because you know what doesn't work? Working on your sin for your whole life on your own without Christ. It is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If that's you, if you're trapped in your sin, if you find yourself trying to conquer it and put the flesh to death by any means except for Christ, take this moment and turn your eyes upon Jesus, upon the things that are above With that reality of glory in Christ in mind, set aside your fears, set aside your pride, and find someone to share this with, to walk through this with you. Don't seek your sanctification in secret. Remember that I am the the king of the world, that self-sufficient go-it-alone attitude is earthly thinking. It is ineffective in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Invite a believer into your struggle. Get your sin into the open. As Ephesians says, live as a son 
or a daughter of the light. If that's you today, I would love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you, to mourn and weep with you over your sin, and to seek Christ with you and to walk that long road of sanctification with you. It's not easy, and it will not be quick or painless. But Christ is the only means of real sanctification. And that is no empty promise. Hopefully what you've seen this morning with me is that Christ alone is our means of salvation and our means of sanctification and nothing else can add anything to these works of Christ in us. Brothers and sisters, seeing how awesome and glorious Christ is in, in who He is and what He has done, why would we seek to add anything to His work? Why would we stack shadows to seek substance? Consider your own life in light of that glory that is secured forever for us in Christ. Compare your life today in this present reality to what, we, what is hidden with Him. What things must be cast off? What flesh must be put to death? What must you put on? Brothers and sisters, together let us set our minds on the things that are above, on Christ, on glory. And let the reality of your glorious eternal future change you day by day to be more like Christ, who is our life, in whom we have all things. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this text, for what Paul shows us so clearly, how there is no room to add anything to the work that you have done, how your work in salvation and sanctification is sufficient. Lord, would we surrender our, our sin we hold most close, it's pride and thinking we can do anything to add to those works. Lord, stir in us a desire to look upon you. And with that reality of the glory that you secured for us eternally, change our life today. May we live according to that reality of glory and not this one of brokenness, of emptiness, of false promises on this earth. Lord, may we seek you in all things. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has secured all of this for us. Amen.